You asked for it way back in episode number 40, How Your Woodworking Business Will Fail. I mentioned that, you know, if somebody contacted me or bought me a cup of coffee, I would do a podcast on sawtooth geometry. So here it is. Wait, wait, wait. Before you leave, I've also thrown in saw sharpening, all kinds of saw blade sharpening. So you might want to stick around for that. My name is Roger Kugler. This is Working at Woodworking Podcast, episode number 43. I'm here to encourage you to take your woodworking skills and spread them around the community. Help the little old lady down the block fix her rocking chair. Help the young family build a piece of furniture. Help the desperate homeowners refinish their kitchen cabinets before they kill each other. So there are two, maybe three types of woodworkers. There's the hand tool woodworkers, the power tool woodworkers, and the hybrid woodworkers. Not my term. That belongs to Mark Spagnolo. But I think professional woodworkers, we probably gravitate towards the power tool and use hand tools where they really do the best job. So technically, we're hybrid woodworkers. It's the best tool for the job. I don't care if it has a cord on it or a battery or you have to use carbohydrates to power it. It's the best tool for the job. And very often, that is a handsaw. It would take you 25 minutes to set up a jig or a guide to use a power tool to make this cut where you can pick up a dovetail saw and in 47 seconds have the cut made. Of course, providing that you know how to use a dovetail saw, that comes from practice, and that the saw is sharp. Now, back in episode 40, I complained that a 20 TPI saw was just a little a little too fine for my taste. I, I prefer something a little more aggressive, you know, 12, 14, 16 TPI, and that's what's led to this, this podcast. So let's go ahead and jump in, talking about hand saws and sawtooth geometry. Fascinating subject. Hand saws can be broken down into two types, a rip saw or a crosscut saw. A rip saw is basically nothing more than a whole bunch of little tiny chisels all lined up in a straight row. And whenever you rip a board, cutting with the grain, those little chisels just take and carve out a little piece of wood each time it passes through the wood. And so the tooth geometry is pretty simple. And typically a rip saw is going to have between 4 to 6 TPI. Oh, TPI. That means it's time to define that word. Okay, teeth per inch. This is the pitch of the saw. The pitch referring to the number of teeth per inch. If the saw is made in Britain, they use tooth per inch or teeth per inch. If the saw is made in the U.S., it uses points per inch. Why? I have no bloody idea. Is this really important? No, not really. Semantics, basically. 
But if you have a saw that is listed in points per inch PPI, it's going to be slightly higher than a saw listed in TPI, usually like one tooth. So a 16 TPI saw blade would be a 17 PPI saw blade because we're counting the whole tooth, not just the... Yep, that doesn't make any sense. So one is counting the teeth per inch, the whole tooth, and nothing but the tooth. And the other is counting the points per inch. I have no idea why they did this. Who knows? It's not all that important. We can just add it to the alphabet soup. You know, TPI, PPI, PPE, STD, RPG, MPG, XYZ. So a ripsaw, one that plows through the wood, is going to have very few teeth per inch because we want really big teeth. Really big teeth produce really big gollets. The gullet is the negative space between the teeth. That's the space the sawdust is going to get collected in after it's cut by the little chisel and then thrown out as that tooth passes through the bottom of the wood back into air and that piece of wood can drop to the ground. So we want those big wide gullets that can contain a lot of wood. If we are using a, let's say, a 12 TPI rip saw, there's not very large gullets. So sawdust is really going to get packed in there if you're cutting a wide board. Now you could use a 12 TPI or PPI saw and cut a thin board ripping it because it's not taking out that much wood. Does that make sense? You you have to have the capacity to get rid of the wood that you have just cut. And this applies to any cutting tool, to a hand plane. You have to be able to get rid of the wood that you have just shaved off or it's going to clog up. If you're using a router bit, that router bit has to have a large enough gullet that it can expel the wood that the cutting edge just removed. If you don't, or if you're moving too fast and overloading that gullet, then that gets one, impacted, very, you, you literally have to dig it out, or two, it starts to overheat and burn. And you see those black marks, you know, on, on your workpiece. Well, that's caused by cooked carbohydrates in the wood and due to overheating. So in a way, the gullet size is almost more important or should be the focus rather than TPI or PPI, but that's how we have, have labeled them. So what about a crosscut saw? Well, a crosscut saw works a little differently. Instead of being a whole bunch of little chisels lined up, this is more like a whole bunch of little knives lined up. In fact, there's two rows of knives or knife points on a crosscut saw, and it slices through the wood. And we'll typically see a little higher PPI or TPI than you would with a rip saw. A 8 to 12 PPI is really good for a panel saw. And where a dovetail saw may have 12 to 22, you know, PPI. What about a Japanese saw? Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, we're getting into to very different geometry there. Uh, Japanese saws are, are very unique. They 
evolved much differently than the western saws did. The wood that they were cutting is much different than the western saws uh, would, would typically cut. And so their, their sawtooth geometry is much different. I don't want to get into that. Let's just say that they're long and incredibly scary sharp. I had a uh, a toolbox saw, one that I bought at Menards for like 15 bucks. It was called a, the shark tooth saw and very aptly named. That thing would walk through a two before in like 3.2 seconds. It was very, very fast. And I accidentally kind of let that scrape against my, my leg one time and it opened me up. I mean, I had a like a two inch gash. I have suffered worse lacerations from hand saws than I have from power tools. Yes, I just knocked on wood. So the, the thing with sharpening Japanese blades, you have to use a feather file and more practically, you replace the blade. A lot of the Japanese saws come with a removable handle, thereby you buy a new blade and put it on once it goes dull because it's um it's kind of a kind of a bugger to uh to to sharpen those so another term we're going to hear when we're talking about sawtooth geometry is rake rake refers to how steep tooth is in relation to the saw plate on a rip saw the rake is pretty close to zero it's almost perpendicular to the baseline of the saw where all the the saw teeth line up the business end of the saw it might be a little forward lean to it that would be referred to as a as a positive rake that's a very aggressive tooth it's really going to to grab some wood and rip it out hence rip saw where a crosscut saw is probably going to have a little bit of a negative rake. In other words, from perpendicular, that tooth is going to be leaning backwards, back towards the handle of the saw. And a typical crosscut saw is going to be eh, 10, 12 degrees. And you can get really deep into this. In fact, if you want to take the little trip down a rabbit hole, go check out Shannon Rogers with the uh, Renaissance Woodworker. His webpage and podcast and school, he's got a chart on there. I've, I've left a, a link to one of his posts that goes through and identifies the rake angles of different saws according to the use of the saw. So if you had a saw that you wanted to set up for cutting hardwoods, you might put a rake angle on that of between 6 and 10 degrees according to Shannon's little chart here. Or if you wanted to set it up for softwoods, you might only want a 0 to 6 degree rake on that. And this changes for the different types of saws, you know, crosscut saw, you know, tenon saw, dovetail saw. Why do we even care about all this? Well, if you're just one of those people who really get into hand saws, this is bread and butter. This is sweet honey to you. I mean, you 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 just just live this stuff. If you were a professional woodworker a hundred years ago, 
it would be really important to you because you didn't want to expend any more energy than you possibly had to. So if you had one saw that really, really struggled to get through hard white oak, if somebody gave you another saw that had a different rake angle on it, that it made that job easier, you would want that. This is the the, the minutiae where we really increase our efficiency. And we do it, power tool people do it today. You can buy a circular saw at the big box store for $19.95. It will cut wood. Or you could spend $600 and buy a Festool circular saw, and it will cut wood. What's the difference? One's going to do it infinitely better than the other and last like 40 times longer. So that's why this is important. Or if you are a restoration carpenter, it becomes very important. Somebody hires you to come in and repair a a home that was built in the 1840s and it has to be perfect. You show up there with a Festool track saw, uh uh-uh. That's not going to cut it. They didn't have those in the 1840s. They had hand saws. And they're going to expect you to use the same type of hand tool to do the work that the original craftspeople did back in the 1840s. I've mentioned Ron Hawk, who who lived in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Um, He would show up at the woodworking shows with a, a box of hand saws. Yeah, he he built this very nice box with a lid that would come off of it. And he had like, I don't know, 10 hand saws in there. Each one of them was sharpened to do a specific job. There's a softwood crosscut. There's a softwood rip. There's a hardwood rip. You know, this one does this. This one does that. He was very, very proud of the saws. And I really admired the attention to detail that he took in doing his his work. So that's why this stuff matters. If you are not a restoration carpenter, then it probably doesn't. And hang on to the end of the show and we'll talk a little bit about power tool, saw blade sharpening. Okay, another term we need to know. Flim. Flim is the angle on the face of the tooth. How can I do this in a podcast? If you had a a panel saw, a crosscut saw in front of you, you're holding it upside down so the teeth are pointing up. You're holding it at arm's length. Flim is the angle horizontal on that tooth that creates that knife point whenever you sharpen it. I know this, I'm not doing a good job here. You're going to have to do a little bit of research, but phlegm is the angle horizontal that produces the, the knife point. Let's just leave it at that. Once you see a photo of this or a diagram, you'll, you'll understand perfectly. Slope is kind of a modification of phlegm. It's the vertical angle that you would hold a file when you're sharpening that point. Set. We've, we've heard of set. Everyone's heard of set. Set is bending the tooth outward so that the kerf that it, the teeth cut is wider than the actual saw plate. If we had a, a flush trim saw, some of you might have one. They're very handy if you do a lot of, um, 
plugged holes in your um, uh, work, you can use a flush trim saw and cut those plugs off perfectly flush without scratching the original work. The problem with a flush trim saw is that they tend to bind up in the saw kerf that they're just cutting. So if we bend those teeth outward alternately, we can increase the width of the saw kerf, thereby giving more room for the saw blade to slide through the kerf. We've been using this for, oh, about 2,000 years or so. In fact, if you want an interesting story, go back and listen to episode number 14, the uh, Christmas episode. So those are the words that you need to understand to begin to get some idea of sawtooth geometry and more importantly, how to sharpen your own hand saws. So what do you need? Well, first you need some hand saws to sharpen. You don't have any hand saws? Not terribly surprised because we are a very power tool oriented society right now. I would encourage you to pick up some hand saws. Go to auctions. Go to yard sales. You'll see really big saws, rip saws. You'll see little bitty tiny saws. You know, a dovetail, a gents type saw. And you can pick these up for not very much money. Now, if you see a bunch of old, mostly overweight white guys with beards, retired, a little bit of a you know, beer gut there, all kind of hovering around this one or two saws at an auction. Um, those are professional saw buyers, and they know that that particular saw, it might be a Richardson from the 1890s, and these guys are going to pay big bucks for that. That's not what you're looking for. You know, find a, an old Diston. Uh, they made billions of them, and, you know, 5 10 15 maybe $20 if it was in really decent shape. You know, so just keep your eyes out for those. They, they, they pop up here and there. So what type of tools do you need for sharpening your saws? This is one of the great things. You don't need very much. If you want to go real fancy, you can get a saw vise. Again, you can find these at, at auctions or yard sales. Some antique shops uh, will have them. They have no idea what they are, but they have them. Um, or you can make one. Not very hard at all. Um, I've put some uh, YouTube links in the uh, in the show notes. You'll need a set of files. You can go to the hardware store and buy a set of small triangle files that works perfectly fine. Or you can go to some place like Highland Woodworkers and buy saws from them. Uh, Veritas, which is a favorite of, uh, of our Canadian friends, a send hate mail to working at woodworking.com. But the Veritas are, are very, very nice. They, they have a nice little package set. Everything that you would need to to, to sharpen uh, saws. Um, there's all kinds of jigs and guides that might be helpful for you, but certainly not necessary. And you're going to need some instruction. And for that, in this modern era, we have Paul Sellers videos on YouTube. He's a Brit who has been producing very, very interesting YouTube videos about woodworking for, I don't know, probably decades. And he has a very good one on saw sharpening. Another good one I found was by YouTuber uh, Wood by Wright, How to Sharpen a Hand Saw, Rip Saws. 
very easy to follow and, and very easy to understand his technique. We tend to turn saw sharpening into some type of religious experience, and it's not. I mean, if you can sharpen your chisels, your plain irons, you can easily sharpen your own hand saws. Shannon Rogers, as I mentioned earlier, is fantastic. Uh, Tay Fried teaches woodworking, the three-set book that I've gone on and on and on about. He goes through and shows step-by-step how he does it, kind of old school. There's no fancy jigs or anything like that. He just gets the job done. And if you want to go full nine yards into this and start doing saw restoration, I would highly recommend you check out a YouTube video on Bob Amaret's YouTube channel, How to Sharpen and Restore a Handsaw with Bob Gary of Take a Dip. Again, these are all in the, the show notes. So what about table saw blades? How do you sharpen those? My advice, you don't. You send them out. If you've got a table saw blade that's, you know, 100, 125 bucks, I'm not going to mess with that. I mean, these are carbide teeth as opposed to, you know, carbon steel with a, a handsaw. I'm, I'm not going to mess with those. Every area has a saw sharpener within a couple hours. Most of the saw sharpeners, the professional saw sharpeners, have some type of a route set up, a circuit that they run, you know, Every Thursday, mine comes through and picks up the planer blades and the saw blades that I need to be sharpened, and he brings them back on the following Thursday. It's not very expensive. In fact, I would wager to say that you will spend more time messing around with these things and cost you more money in shop time than at what it will cost in just having somebody else do it. And they're done professionally and very, very well. If you can't find one, ask a cabinet shop in your area because they're having their saw blades sharpened by somebody. And you can also check out Workshop News. That's that magazine, that trade magazine that I've encouraged you to be a subscriber of. It's free. Link in the show notes. And there's a section in there called the Red Book. Uh, You can find this on our website and it lists like 20 different saw sharpeners across the nation. You can find one, you know, close to you. Shipping is kind of a an issue if you're sending it out. And it almost seems like the price of shipping now is pretty much the same if you're shipping next state over or if you're shipping all the way across the country. It's it's really gotten crazy. Bandsaws, typically it's faster, easier, less stressful just to replace the bandsaw because they're not that expensive. If we're talking about, you know, the, the average, you know, 12, 14 inch bandsaw that are so incredibly, you know, popular and prevalent. If you have a carbide tipped bandsaw blade, well, I'm going to probably send that back to the manufacturer and let them sharpen that because they are not inexpensive. You can sharpen your own bandsaw blades. I know that if I did that, I would end up with more expense in band-aids than what the, the saw blade would cost. So recommendations for the week. Uh, the ones that I mentioned, of course, in the show notes. And I would also like to, uh, to make a shout out to greenboatstuff.com. This is a company out in, I think, Spokane, Washington, and they 
their focus is on providing environmentally friendly, green friendly boat hardware. And what I found very attractive was their selection of fasteners. I use a lot of silicon bronze in my canoe res- restoration, and I found that they have really the the lowest prices, even with the shipping from Washington. You know, kind of being environmentally friendly, they're sending the last batch of screws I got from them in a small, it was like a 3 by 5 envelope, paper envelope. It was taped up. It wasn't this great big box with a little bitty tiny package inside of it. So there was no extraneous packing material or anything like that. And it was a lot cheaper for shipping that way. So so check them out. Oh, here's a little pro tip. If you're doing any type of work on boats or any furniture projects that you expect somebody's going to take this apart in 20, 40, 100 years... To, to do a repair and you're using screws, straight slotted screws are it. Don't use Phillips. Don't use Torx. Don't use square drive. Use straight slotted. I'm a big fan of Lou on Tips from the Shipwright YouTube channel. And Lou lectured about using straight slotted screws in that you can always get them out. You have a bunch of wood putty or paint clogging up the slot. You can dig that out pretty quickly, pretty painlessly. And on this latest boat I was restoring, somebody had used Phillips screws. They were silicon bronze, but they were a Phillips drive. And I could not get them out. I could not clean them out. I finally used my propane torch to heat up an old number two Phillips bit until it got hot. And then I shoved that into the screw and let it melt the old varnish until I got it in deep enough that I could actually get purchased to pull the screws out. And they were pretty much wrecked anyway because it would slip and just not a big fan of Phillips or square drive when it comes to boats. Miss job, um, a property owner called and said he needed some crown molding installed in a uh, one of his uh, apartments. And as he said, I, I, I can't sell my firstborn to afford the original gum crown molding. I think he said it was like six or seven inch crown molding. Yeah, that is definitely a custom job and is not going to be made out of gum, at least not in, in my area. So you could easily do that if you have the skills and the ladder and the young legs to be that high all day. Uh, But that's a very profitable job. Not very many people can do that well. And I would like to add a new feature to the podcast called, Boy Did I Screw Up. This boat that I I have been working on for seemingly like ever. I'm down to the final paint jobs and I'm using my HVAP, you know, sprayer to do that. And I had everything sanded, everything tacked off. I had uh, Dexter curtains up in my shop, you know, to control the overspray, which honestly with HVLP is surprisingly very little. I'm almost tempted not to use them, but 
I'm going to continue. So I have everything set up. I've, I have paint in the, uh, in the cup, a gravity-fed cup, and I add the 10% xylene to thin it and pour that in and put the cap on, get everything ready and do a test spray. And that looks okay. And I start spraying. It's like, wait a minute. This seems a little heavy, a little almost orange peely, you know, and I, I grab the manual and I'm looking up, you know, what could be causing this troubleshooting and kind of pulling my hair out, which was hard because I had a mask on and, and an old cap on. And it's like I, I adjusting the airflow, which should be full on. I'm adjusting the, the, the needle valve to control the paint flow. And this is looking a little better, but oh, geez. Okay, just finish it. So I do one side of the boat and as I'm going, it's starting to look a little better and I, I get to the other side of the boat and I'm starting to do that and I'm thinking, wonder how much paint I have left. And I swooshed the, the cup around and then it dawned on me. I bet, and I continued spraying and oh my gosh, it got so much better. The atomization just improved dramatically. And by the time I got to the other end of the second side of the boat, it was gorgeous. In fact, it was just starting to get a little too thin. I put the paint in the cup and I added the thinner, but I never stirred the two together until I went to the other side of the boat and swished the cup around to see how much paint I had left. Duh! Oh my gosh, how stupid. Surprisingly, whenever the paint dried, the f first side of the boat actually looked okay. I thought it was going to be just this horrible orange peely mess, but the paint did actually level out on its own and looked okay. It wasn't great. It did not look as good as probably the middle of the second side of the boat where the mixture thinner to paint was just perfect. But anyway, lesson learned. You've got to pay attention to what you're doing. And I would like to throw a big thanks out to listeners in Banbury, Oxfordshire, and England. Really appreciate it, as well as listeners in Atlanta, Georgia. Really, really appreciate it. I have an affiliate link to Tay Freed's Teaching Woodworking, the three-book set, down in the show notes if you're interested in that. It's a 40-year-old book probably older than that now, uh, a set of three books. You really, if you don't have that in your library, you're missing out. I mean, this is old school nuts and bolts woodworking that honestly hasn't changed over the years. The tools have changed, but the techniques have not. So that needs to be in your library. And of course, check out the other affiliate links I have down there. And as always... I would love it if you'd buy me a cup of coffee. So until next week, happy woodworking.